Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and as always, I am with the cutest ever, Sarah, who has a brand new tattoo that we should talk about also. Um, And today we're talking about the effects of climate change on mental health. And Sarah... Oh, rad. Okay. Sarah doesn't know that we're doing this, clearly, because last night we were driving and I told Aaron, I was like, oh my God, Aaron, text Sarah right now. And he's like, okay. I was like, tell her that I have this like really interesting podcast idea. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm, let's just get into it. And Sarah has no concept of what we're talking about right now, but let me just maybe give a little bit of a backstory. Um, so I live in British Columbia, Canada, um, and we're recording today is November 21st. Um, this will probably come out in a week. So last Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, there was what was called an atmospheric river in British Columbia, especially the Southern part of British Columbia, which is where I live. And my particular city that I live in got the normal amount of rain that we would get in a month in 24 hours. And we're talking, I did the math because I converted it to inches for Sarah. I believe it was just over 11 inches of rain in 24 hours. Yeah. Which is a lot. And in in Vancouver, like it rains a lot, right? Like that's not abnormal. We're called Raincouver for a reason, but this was like actually crazy. And if you have been watching the news, I don't know how much it's been covered internationally, but definitely in BC and Canada, it's been quite uh, heavily covered. There was huge amounts of devastation from this. I think climate disaster is a fair way to describe this. Almost all of the highways connecting British Columbia to the rest of Canada have been gone um, and just like completely like destroyed. There's been mudslides. So like washed out or? There's been sections that are just like legit gone. There's other sections that have um, had like mudslides, rock slides, or are still flooded to the point where like they can't get things through. So our supply chain is a challenge. So now we're being told we have to ration gas. So there's like an amount, there's only a certain amount of gas that we can get. And like, for context, if I were to go from my house, how are they measuring that? Are they literally tracking the amount of gas each person gets? Yeah. So thankfully I got gas last week and I don't drive very much. So I don't need gas. We can get 30 liters of gas per person, uh, which I don't know what the gallons is, but I don't, I have no idea. Not very much. And what I guess what they're doing is they're having like, like a cap on the pumps up to 30 liters, but because people are shitty and they're assholes, people are still bringing jerry cans and just doing like multiple transactions over and over and over again until gas stations are out of gas, which is just like so disgusting. And is this just so they can like run generators and whatnot or what? I think it's just because they a have to have like emergency vehicles available to get gas, but because we're cut off from the rest of the country right now, they're just really worried about the supply chains of gas coming to us. But I don't know why people are hoarding gas. I mean, people are hoarding everything. Apparently the grocery stores are just like empty. And like, again, the, the privilege and the like amount of 
assholeness that you have to have to hoard food from people that can't afford to hoard food is just disgusting. Yeah. Um, And tell me about the homeless population there, because I mean, we have a pretty significant homeless population here in Portland. Yeah, we do here as well. Um, In Abbotsford specifically, I would say that I don't know the actual numbers, but there is quite a high homeless population. Um, To be perfectly honest with you, I actually don't know where they are right now. Um, I, I would say that based on where the like really bad flooding has happened, they probably weren't in that area anyways. They're closer. Like they're, I think generally speaking, they're hiding out on higher ground. Um, But yeah, I I really don't know. Um, I should know to be honest with you, but either way, like we have emergency response centers set up and like they, like they could go there. um, But it's just, yeah, the food thing drives me nuts. The gas thing drives me nuts. But so Throughout this whole thing, um, there have been evacuation orders from five minutes down the road for me. Thankfully, my house is on high enough ground that I was that our house is fine and we were okay. But like we're watching video, audio, pictures every single day of places that we would go to all the time. Like, you know, the routes that I go to my friend's house down the road, like twice a week and my other friend's house once a week to go play Catan, like these roads that we take, these businesses that we frequent all of the places that we go shopping are just in 12 feet of water, which is actually like so ridiculous. And it's been causing me a significant amount of stress to the point where I just feel like the level of stress that like, you know, when you just feel like heavy, like there's just like a physical weight on your body and that's how I'm feeling. And so I was looking into, well, I mean, part of, part of my issue is that I obsess over things and, and this is not uncommon for me. So, you know, I just read articles. I watch all of the press conferences. I do all this stuff, but in some of the articles that I was reading this concept of pre-traumatic stress disorder related to climate change came up. And I was fascinated by that concept because I had never heard of pre-traumatic stress. Have you ever heard of pre-traumatic stress? Not specifically, but it does make perfect sense. Yeah, it does. It's very weird though, because I've never heard that concept. And I'm I'm definitely by no means trying to say that I have pre-traumatic stress disorder, but I'm just, what I wanted to talk about today is the concept of pre-traumatic stress in a world where we are living with the constant threat of the impacts of climate change every single day. Um, I mean, like I can think about in British Columbia, for example, three months ago, we had one of the worst fire seasons that we've ever had. Then there was a tornado, which like I've never seen in my lifetime. Apparently one did happen like 20 years ago, but I've never seen that before. It was, it wasn't near me, but it was on the university campus that I go to. And then this like atmospheric river that caused flooding, the flooding is not over. Like it's been almost a week and the flooding is not over. And we're expecting more rain in a couple of days. So like this threat is just kind of constant. Anyways, I'm kind of rambling, but. Well, I guess one of my things, first of all, though, is like this idea of pre-traumatic stress feels like a kind of distraction from the reality that living is, which is that living it right now is just incredibly stressful. And to me, it's like, there's no, like, I honestly don't know a single person who isn't living with 
symptoms consistent of trauma as a result of just being a community member. Totally. And it's worth, it's worth noting that anxiety has valid reasons to it in that like anxiety kicks our ass to study for tests, maybe to do something about climate change, et cetera. So I, like, I definitely think that there, the anxiety around this is valid. Um, and I actually, for once in our lives, because Sarah and I never do pre-work for an episode, but I started looking up research journal articles about pre-traumatic stress because I was very curious. Um, so I do have some stuff I, specific to these articles that I want to talk about, but I think like validating the fact that we have stronger reactions to things in general is important to validate that this can be really devastating to us. Like I'm, you know, I'm around, I live in a community that I'm around people that are, you know, all from the same community. And I'm just feeling like so much guilt about the fact that my house is okay. So much guilt about the fact that Aaron and I were allowed to get out of town or were able to get out of town when we did guilt that I'm not like that. I am food secure. And that like, even if I haven't tried to go to a grocery store, but even if I did try and go to a grocery store, like I'm not really concerned about the fact that I don't have food because I could find food within my own house. You know, we have vehicles, we have money that we could use to get a hotel if we needed to. Like there's anyways, there's all of this guilt. And then there's this additional amount of stress and like hopelessness that I think the hopelessness of people, at least for me, my experience having BPD is that the hopelessness is so strong. And I think that that's where like a lot of our suicidal ideation comes from is just like, literally what's the point? God, for real. Yeah. Well, and, and again, like I'm, I have not lived through this atmospheric river and I'm like, I've been like watching that just the video clips that you've posted has been gnarly. I'm so glad you are all safe. And yeah, I totally mourn for the people, especially our unsheltered people who like are not. And the animals. I mean, and the animals, there's so many Um, animals that have died, but I do think like, for me, the concept really is like zooming even further out of like, it's not just climate change, right? It's like the profound political stress that we are under as a result of these differing opinions on climate change, on immigration, on, you know, like all of these other social I mean, COVID, COVID, all of these other social issues, scientific issues, whatever. And like my hopelessness yeah like I can't even settle it on the climate change because it's also on like all of these other things that are just intersecting with basically things that our political systems are constantly arguing about and that shit is exhausting well, yeah, agreed. And and I think like the amount of individual power we have over these situations is hopeless in all of those situations, right? Like we can support people of color and try and like provide them with as much as opportunity as we can for them to like raise their voices and be safe and we can be allies. But at the end of the day, like the justice system is 
above us. I mean, in the States, I guess you do elect judges, which we don't do in Canada, but. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But you know, there have been very recent acquittals of people who were not black where you would have seen the opposite happen. And like, what, what individual power do we have over that situation other than voting? And I'm, that's a legit, that's a legitimate question. If somebody, if somebody's like, Lori, you're an idiot, of course you can do X, Y, Z. Like, please tell me because I would love to do any of those sure. things. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The community organizing the mutual aid, right? Like those are the things that we can do. And I really would like to be able to do more of those things. And that's where, yeah, that's where the profound level of privilege that you and I have is outside of climate change, but everything else, right. Is like, we can turn our mutual aid off and not be affected by it. Mm -hmm. Like you said, when last two summers ago, our, the house I owned with my ex-wife was in a level one evacuation zone because of the fires that were going on. And we lost all of our power and all of these things. And we were able to just be like, well, forget everything in our fridge. Like, and we can go stay with family in outside of the level one zones and other people can't. There is this kind of like survivor guilt aspect to it that is devastating because as people with borderline, right, we have such empathy that we want to be able to like reach all of our like octopus tentacle hands out to everybody and serve, 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 serve. And we can't, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And we just hold it so strong. And I, and I'm feeling like the people around me aren't holding it as strong. And so I feel like kind of a freak that it's affecting me so much when it wasn't my, you know, my cattle that have died or my business that has been destroyed or my home or um, any of these things. It's just, it's kind of isolating in that the feelings are so much more strong and the hopelessness is like an automatic thing that we go to because it's black and white. It's either the world is great or the world is ending. Um, And how do we find the middle ground of like, this is the world we live in and how can we try and make it better through our individual or collective action without the ability to in Canada, make it so that the government doesn't buy a pipeline for no reason or go against indigenous people who are trying to protect their land while we're going through an entire climate change emergency. <sighs> it's, it, it is, it feels hopeless. And okay. So let me just go. So I found this article by, um, why can't I see the author? I can't see the author, but it was through the John Hopkins, Hopkins university press, uh, September or spring, 2020. So just before COVID, which was very clear because I think that this pre-traumatic stress syndrome thing would be something that COVID would also relate to a lot. And it's not mentioned in this article. So that's important to mention, but they talk about the concept of climate illness. And this person basically did a bit of a lit review on a a number of articles um, over the last probably five or six years about climate illness and how it affects our mental health. And so um, some, some just interesting pieces that I pulled out here is society societies worldwide are moving from logic to emotion, from reason to feelings. And theoretically, if publics can understand the negative emotions 
and psychic conditions that prevent positive action in society can begin to confront the resistance to tackling what humans are doing to the biosphere. Instead, it may help to acknowledge that given the situation, panicking may be appropriate. And again, I think that that's one of those things where like panicking is appropriate. Like my grandfather's a scientist, geophysicist, I think is what my grandpa is. And uh, apparently 40 years ago, somebody asked, how can you prove climate change is real? And the expert was like, we can't right now, but by the time we can, it's too late. And that was 40 years ago. And I mean, we're seeing it all around us. Well, and it's interesting too, because millennials are this and everybody wants to like trash on us and whatever, but like, also we gave you Xenon girl of the 21st century. So don't, but, um, we gave them what (sighs) you don't remember Xenon. No. Oh my God. Okay. That's fine. We'll talk about this later. Anyways, everybody wants to trash on millennials, right? But we are really the, the end and the beginning of so much like Gen Z probably doesn't remember when Oregon didn't get above 83 degrees in the summertime. I remember that. We had a 114 degree day this summer twice. That's 30 degrees Mm -hmm. higher than it would have ever possibly been in my childhood. And for the Canadian audience, converting that in BC, we had the heat dome in the summer and we went from like 30 something degrees as like the normal to a day where it was 46.7 degrees. That is insane. And 800 people died because of that heat. Like it's unreal. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah, that was, yeah. But, you know, like, going back to what your grandfather said, like, we're not going to be able to prove it until it's too late. Well, our generation is the first generation that's being exposed to all of the negative results of the conversations over the last, like, however many decades around technology, around environment, around having too many fucking children, like food scarcity, all of these things. And that I think is what is uniquely heavy on the heart of millennials who are birthing the next generations of people, to be honest, like, I can't believe my friends who are my age are having kids. And this is another thing that prompted this conversation is that I do have friends my age that are trying to have kids or having kids. And I'm with you. I, why, to be honest, like, I don't know how they could possibly justify it. That's the thing for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've never wanted kids. And so I sometimes wonder if oh I'm Oh my just God, like- I have wanted all of the, I want, I wanted all of them. Ooh, I wanted all of them. My ex-wife and I had a contract with a donor. Really? Yeah. I probably have never told you that. No, I you didn't. Been. Okay. Yeah. Well then this is good because I'm, you're, com- you're not coming from a, of a perspective that's inherently anti having kids. Oh whereas- my God. No. If the world wasn't going to absolutely eat my children alive into a sinkhole of shit, hell fuckery. And if I didn't have borderline personality disorder, I would have like six. Ew. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And I mean, like some people have this like inherent need to have children and I don't have that inherent need. So I will never even pretend to understand what that inherent need feels like. Because when I see people having kids, I'm like, what are you, why, what are you, 
what do you see that's positive about that? But I would be the cutest mom. Yeah. I just said it. I'm sorry. I'd be so cute as a mom. Okay. Keep going. (laughs) You would be, I mean, and you know what, like Aaron doesn't want kids either, but he would be the best dad ever watching him with children is the cutest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And for some reason, like just neither of us want kids, which is great because we don't have to have that conversation. It's fantastic. But I mean, I'm not sure the world is going to not explode from climate change before I'm dead. Let alone. I think, I don't think that's true, but I think it will get very, very bad, very bad. Right. Okay. So maybe, maybe it won't implode, but will it be livable when we're 90? I imagine if you have the resources and you're privileged enough that it will still be livable, but the discrepancy between, you know, middle-class, if we believe there still is one and people living without those resources, it will be really difficult for it to be livable for them. Right. Okay. So then I guess like the fundamental question about having kids is whether or not you want to live in a world where only the rich survive in a way that's livable or, Happy or like or enjoyable safe. to live. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, but this is the fucking crazy shit about this, right? And this is for where I'm like, okay, well, let's zoom out a bit is that's just climate change. That's not talking about what it's like to live as a woman, what it's like to live as a queer person, what it's like to live as a person of color, what it's like to live as a person who who's immigrated. All of that those just doesn't things. have money in general, like low socioeconomic yeah, status in general. In poverty. Yeah. Yeah. A person with an intellectual disability, a person with a mental illness, like all of those things, the intersection of it. Yeah. I can't imagine 60 years from now, those people having a good life unless things fundamentally change in a way that we can't even contextualize. I do see hope for the people with mental health issues. I do see hope for that group none of the rest of those groups do I see like a significant change for the better that I've seen in the last 28 years of my life. You know what I mean? Not to say that any of those groups like can't, well, I guess maybe queer people as well, but it's not that any, it's not that those groups like can't have that positive life, but like, it's not, this isn't systems are not set up to serve them. Systems are not changing fast enough for me to be like, in 10 years, that's going to be great. Or like there isn't going to be systemic oppression or there isn't going to be systemic racism or discrimination or any of these things. And this is what is so crazy to me about this is that people will listen to this podcast and be like, what are you talking about? How how could you possibly say that's true when gay people can get married and, you know, there's not segregation or slavery and all of these things. Imprisoning people is enslaving them. They Individuals in prisons in the United States are literally working for pennies a day and they are put in prisons for crimes that they didn't commit or were put in prisons because there was a legitimate school to prison pipeline. Like based on their race, they were statistically far more likely to end up in that place because our systems are not set up to support and serve them. Every system from and when child welfare to school to like the employment system to the justice system. Every single system is set up to fail for those people and arguably designed for that reason. And I know- Absolutely designed for that reason. 
absolutely yeah. designed. We recorded an episode that will be probably coming out a week after this one. Cause I think this one is very timely, at least for people in Canada. Um, but where we talked about the education system and how, you know, it, the three, the people that we were talking to, uh, Sarah, myself, and a guest were talking about how like the education system is fundamentally flawed and that it's not working. And then I believe it was our guest who said, like, I think it is working. Like, yeah, that's what they said. Yeah. It's working to increase class differences. And I was right. like, yeah. it's working for people like you, right? People like totally. you, meaning you and I. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing is all three of us were sitting there having a conversation about the fact that we all have master's degree or are either pursuing a master's degree or have a master's degree, have access to higher education. We all believe that it's fundamentally broken, but maybe it's not like in the sense that that's what the system is looking for. Sure. Listen, I, the neighborhood I grew up in, probably like maybe 25 homes in like a little loop. My mom was one of the only that worked, not a single person of color in that neighborhood, except for an adopted child. Right? Like systems do serve. Because to be in the neighborhood that my parents were, you know, privileged and able to purchase a home in, you have to be on the pipeline to middle upper class living. And the only people on that pipeline in this country, meaning in the States, are white people, heteronormative people, and people who are able to at least manage their mental illnesses well enough to function from a stereotypical perspective, right? Quote unquote function. Yeah. Or, or at least have one or two of those criteria, right? Like not necessarily all of those criteria, but yeah, one or two of those criteria. And just to go back to the prison system, like I believe in the States, people who have been convicted of felonies also lose their right to vote. Is that not true? That is absolutely insane to me. And isn't it that they lose their right to vote forever? Like you never get that back or is it just while you're no, no, no. You can't vote once you get out. That's my understanding. Like, but let me, let me, how is that, that by a Goog. how is that democratic? That is, ugh. the world is so messed up. Well, this is the thing for me. That's super, super hard when we talk about rehabilitation, right? Is like, okay, take a, take an individual who sex offense, right? Terrible crime, terrible crime. And when we think about wanting to like create safer communities and decrease the likelihood that they will commit that crime again, this is how we end up in this kind of prison system of removing people from communities and housing them. But we're just housing them. And we're exposing them to a fuckload more trauma because they're going to get abused sexually in prison. We're not offering them any services or supports to rehabilitate them. And we say, do your time and then come back out. To me, that's not helpful. Like no. that's not doing anything. What are we doing for people? Right. We say people deserve to go away because of the terrible things that they have done. We're not doing anything by housing them in prisons. 
I'm like kind of not down for the prison thing. I kind of want to get rid of all prisons and take all of the money and invest it in really intensive wraparound behavioral supports. Let's get to the root of why you're offending. Totally. And you know what that would have is a long-term intergenerational effect on the amount of crime that's committed. I mean, in Canada, there's um, something called a dangerous offender um, like designation. And so a lot of um, people who commit like sexual crimes will end up with this danger offender designa- designation. And basically it means that you have no release date. Um, and what's really messed up about, it doesn't mean that you're never going to be released. It just means you have no release date until they can like kind of show that you're, you know, rehabilitated or whatever, but the rehabilitation in the Canadian prison system is dependent on your release date. So they're always the last person to be on the line to access any sort of support because they don't have a release date that they're working backwards from. And so it's like, you give them this designation that like, whether it's deserved or not is not even relevant, but basically you're saying like, yeah, you're not really going to get treatment because you're going to be the last person on the list forever. And a lot of people that commit, let's say sexual crimes, like they, the, the recidivism rate is quite low for the average person. Like there are definitely people that have some sort of challenge that causes them to commit these crimes for a long period of time. But most people that are ending up on like the sex offender registry, like, you know, are victims themselves and did something when they were young and stupid that like they should not have done. And I'm sure they feel guilty about for the rest of their life and deserve that amount of wraparound support to make sure that that never happens again. And, you know, and, and is looking at the challenges that they had when they were a kid. Um, And and this is not like, this is not at all to diminish survivors and their, Oh my God. No, not, not, not not even a little bit. And I don't want, yeah. And I don't want anybody to think that this is the conversation we're having, but it is like their survivors too, a lot of the time. And yeah. So basically long story short, the world is hopeless and we should all panic. Is that what we're I did pull, so depending on the state, individuals who have a felony on their record can lose their voting rights, their ability to travel abroad, the right to bear arms, jury service, um, some employment in certain fields, public social social benefits and housing benefits and parental benefits. So just depending on the state, any or all of those things can be revoked. I have no issue with the right to bear arms because absolutely not. I fucking hate that there are guns in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Like nobody should be carrying a gun anyways, but that's anyway, very different Canadian perspective. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. So back to climate change because yeah, we did a big one. one Oh, and I think it's important because you know what, all of these systems work together and, and this is not like a one issue and all of them have resulted in climate change right like if we were living more sustainably if we were serving all people if we were like this would be not as big of a deal totally and i mean so here this this person so just worth noting that the pre-traumatic stress disorder is not something that is in the dsm so it doesn't it's not technically a disorder but i thought it was a fascinating concept so this author says, um, you know, I might include flash forwards, nightmares, fear-induced association um, now caused by the reference to future rather than a past event, which is what the difference is between that and post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you think about that, now we're just going back to, you know, 
race too. I mean, the fact that individuals who have children of color have to have sit them down and say like, you know, this is how you act around police. You know, that is pre-traumatic stress because they're envisioning the fact that this devastating event may happen to their child just because of the color of their skin or their, or their class or whatever. I mean, anxiety by definition is worrying about the future, correct? Or can you worry about the past? Because post-traumatic stress disorder is an anxiety disorder. This is where Aaron and I got into like this big circular issue. Anxiety is a result of fearing for your safety. So like for me, the past can induce anxiety because the fear of the past repeating itself, like moments in the past where we felt unsafe, that repeating itself. But I think, yeah, most people do experience this kind of future focused anxiety. Right. Okay. And this says like, this is an experience of an apparently inescapable future. And again, that is kind of what we're looking at, right? I mean, we can all do individual things to help with the climate change emergency that is happening. Um, And I mean, like, you know, Aaron and I both love eating meat, but we're very much trying to avoid that where we can. Um, And like, that's been a really conscious change on our part. Do you like tofu or tempeh better though? Tofu. Yeah. But I mean that like also everything has moral issues to it. Right. And, um, and, and I have to be careful because of my like eating disorder brain and my BPD brain that's black and white. I have to be very careful about not like cutting out entire categories of food. So I think the way that we're doing things, which is just like try and choose vegetarian when we have the opportunity or vegan or whatever is, is much better for me, but I don't know. It makes me so sad. So uh, apparently there is a section in the DSM-5 about pre-traumatic factors. So again, it's not necessarily like a diagnosis, but it is mentioned in there. So um, there's three things that might predispose subjects to have an adverse reaction to the events. So temperamental, environmental, and genetic, and physiological So there's four, but it says three. That's really funny. I didn't catch that until now. But I mean, if you look at BPD, we have all of those things. Our temperament is more extreme. We have an invalidating environment that we've lived in. And we have the genetic and physiological reactions to stress that, again, like are likely to be more pronounced, I would say, than the average population. And so um, I think that it's definitely something that can come about for us, like in a little bit of a more, um, pronounced way than the people around us, which can then lead to feeling invalidated. Totally. I really like sibling sets for this perspective. Of Mm -hmm. course, when we like, you know, mental illnesses have largely been studied on like twins, um, for reasons. Cause you were comparing like environment versus genetics versus, you know, whatever. Okay. But When I look at my brother and I, again, a little bit different age, right? Adam was much um, developmentally much younger than I was when our family's traumas really occurred. He is far less impacted by the trauma than I am, like way, way less impacted by it. And I'm sure there's like, you know, stereotypical gender reasons and whatever, but it, he doesn't have BPD and I sure do. So there's definitely something to be said about 
about like the trauma impact. I think people with BPD just feel and experience trauma in a way that is, you know, like so much bigger and therefore affected by the impact of it so much bigger. And is that for yourself and your brother, was he old enough to be kind of aware of what was going on at the time? I mean, you've had loss and trauma since like you've been an adult and he's an adult as well. So I would think that that might impact. Yeah. But the compounding trauma is really interesting. Like the trauma compounding on me is very profound. Whereas on Adam, it's not, but like, you know, I was, I was 11 when my first uncle died by suicide. So Adam would have been eight and much more sheltered from that. I remember sitting in the family room, listening to the sibling set decide what to do and observed all the fighting. And I observed all of my mom's panic attacks and her like using alcohol as a way of coping. And I don't remember Adam being there for any of that. Um, But it's really interesting because like, I also really had this profound need to be included and feel love. So maybe my BPD put me in there to feel it more. Whereas Adam has never felt like that. Like he's just chilling and he doesn't need to be scooped up by people in order to feel and experience love. He's just like happy to love himself. So there's all these weird things to think about, but I mean, I'm way more impacted by how chaotic our family life has been than Adam is. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like to me, he can just kind of set it down and I'm just like feeling like I'm constantly holding it on my shoulders. Yeah. And maybe like, I mean, that's a coping mechanism for him too, potentially. Right. I mean, everybody copes differently. And even in twin studies, we see that like, there's a reason that when the nothing is just nature or just nurture in psychological studies, right? Like there's obviously different factors, but, um, it's never one or the other exclusively. I I think, Um, I mean, there's some crazy twin studies out there that you you should totally read where like people are separated at birth. And then, I mean, you probably have read, I mean, the listeners, (laughs) but where they're separated at birth and then like, they find the person like 40 years later and they have like the same dog's name and the same husband's name and like the same favorite color and all of these super weird things that do not make any sense other than the fact that they are twins. And like, there's some weird brain thing (laughs) that's like connected them around the world. It's twin studies are wild. I just, this, this one particular area of this article was really interesting to me because it says, It talks about how denial conveniently protects people from both panicking and from doing anything remote to remedy humanity's humanity's dire situation. And I think anxiety is a protective factor, but so is denial. (laughs) Um, And how do we move from denial without ending up in panic in a situation like this? I was, I was, I was, I was talking to my friend Dylan about this today when I saw him, um, there's a certain level of dissociation you have to do in order to participate in this society. Like, because I cannot constantly be inundated with the effects of climate change, the social, um, 
you know, unrest that's going on. The fact that I'm a millennial with a shitload of student debt that feels like impossible to climb out of. And, you know, like the cost of living is so high that I have to have two jobs to function. Like all of those things, if I allow myself to constantly sit in it and be inundated with it, I will fucking choke. And so you have to dissociate from it. And honestly, this is probably why like, well, eh, genetics, fuck, but a part of it, probably why I'm an alcoholic, right? Like it's a really nice way to just dissociate from it. So, and again, like maybe that's a positive use of dissociation, but if, if this is going, if we all dissociated, we would all be in denial and we would all end up accelerating the climate situation because we just didn't care. And so I was brainstorming, like, cause at this point I'm not necessarily in the place for skills use. And I think that that's important to like normalize too, is I, not everybody can just do skills all the time. And the skills that I've been doing over the last week of this, like kind of hopeless feeling and anxiety and panic, I think is the fair word is napping and watching trashy TV and just sitting in it. And that's not necessarily the most healthy but I can't, I, that's what I need to do right now. And those are yeah, skills. But those absolutely are. And I think that like skills usage is not linear and it, um, it doesn't just occur like in this post trauma period, it's an ongoing thing. So like mm-hmm. you're in the distraction phase right now, you're in the feel it phase pretty soon. You're going to be in the you know, whatever the next phase of your skills use is, And then you'll be in like radical acceptance and I can say that I feel like I have, uh, this is an area of my life that I have kind of radically accepted, right? Like I have radically accepted that, although I would love to be a mom and um, like experience that I'm not going to. And like, I'm, I've super radically accepted that I have this place of power and privilege that I have a responsibility of using in community organizing and in mutual aid locally because people, it's not changing. It's not changing, unfortunately. It's changing in tiny, 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 tiny increments, sometimes depending on the specific issue, but as a whole, systems are not changing. And, you know, like all of these things. And I don't eat meat and I, you know, try to use sustainable products and chemical free and all that good stuff. But like at that, after that, what else can you do? What else do you do? Yeah. And I mean, I think like, honestly, not having kids is like, I think the number one thing you can do because that person will also not have emissions. And I also think in some ways, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. A lot of people, obviously, because we're women and because people are annoying, will say like, oh, you, you'll you change your mind about wanting to have kids. And which is nobody should say that to somebody. It's stupid. But one of the things that, again, like comes from this ability to have like the financial privilege and like even just like like um, stability, which is kind of ironic given what this podcast is about, um, is that like, if I change my mind, 
I can adopt a kid that want that needs a family and I can Oh my god, totally. Foster. foster. And and that's something Aaron and I, I think I about. probably will foster someday. I think I will. Yeah. I think I would too. And like it's because those kids already exist and they need us, right? And it's, it's I want like, I want to adopt the like angsty motherfuckers that like slam my hands in their doors when they're like 15 and tell me I'm a fucking cut and I'll be like, "Yeah, I am, but I'm the coolest foster mom ever." Come back by 10. Yeah. My, a friend of mine was a foster mom for a long time and she has some, some wild stories. Um, but like, she's the kind of foster mom that I feel like kids needed, right? Like one that both she was, uh, she had her master's of uh, counseling as well. Like, you know, one that understood the psychological issues that they were going through was, I would argue quite cool about it, but also like was there for them, regardless of what they were, uh, involved in. I think she, primarily fostered gang entrenched youth, which would have been very interesting. Um, but, but not everybody has that option either because like fostering, you have to have a level of financial ability. Um, and just like, you know, the child services need to think that you're a responsible person. They're going to think that Aaron and I with good consistent jobs are responsible people, despite the fact that like, maybe we're not, um, and they wouldn't necessarily see other people in the same way. <sighs> I'm so proud of you for feeling through it. I am feeling all of the things. <laughs> I, I know just, that's a beautiful thing. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would love if the hopelessness would go away. But have you tried vodka and grapefruit juice? Because I'm just saying. You know, grapefruit juice messes with SSRIs. I don't, I don't drink vodka and grapefruit juice. Anymore, oh, okay. So I like, that's a hard, mm, can't not I, sober trying really hard to be responsible with alcohol, given the fact that I am an alcoholic for sure. So I've set some boundaries and vodka and grapefruit juice. That's a no for me. Generally liquor is a no for me. Fair enough. I, I actually had an interesting moment. This is totally off topic, but, um, so when we, when we got out of town, we went to a friend's house and generally speaking, like these are friends that we'll like have drinks with and whatever. And I've kind of decided that like, I just don't really like drinking anymore. I think we've kind of talked about this. I just like could take it or leave it. And again, like very thankful that that's my ability. Right. Cause um, I definitely, I definitely would not identify as having an alcohol use disorder, but, but there, even for somebody who doesn't have the addiction, addictive part of that, it's hard socially to just not drink. And like, I have a lot of, um, empathy and respect for people that do have alcohol use disorders or substance use disorders in general who have to be in those situations. People like, Oh, just come on, have one, have one, have one. And it's taken me probably like six months of, okay, fine. I'll just have one, even though I didn't want one. And again, this is very different because it's not like I have an addiction issue. So like I can have one and it's not going to be an issue. I just like, just don't want one. Yeah. Um, I can't have just one drink. Exactly. Yeah. So like, it's even worse for you. Um, but I said to Aaron on the way home, um, yesterday, I was like, you know, what's kind of awesome. I'm over the, yeah, I'll just have one to like, please you. And I'm like, can I have a peppermint tea? (laughs) And I was like, I love it. Like water and peppermint tea are my thing. And like, I've never been a peppermint tea person, but like when everybody's sitting around you having a glass of wine and you're having a peppermint tea, like feels pretty good. Not going to lie to you. And like, I was just like, so happy that I've kind of gotten over that need to drink because they're telling me to mentality. Um, yeah. Anyway, it feels good. Yeah. Totally. It is. It's super fucking hard to be around people who drink. Like if I 
wasn't dating Andrew, I don't think I would have started drinking again, but he drinks and his sister drinks and you know, whatever. So it was and you're, just, a- you're able to do it like safely and in moderation. Yes. I'm always teetering the line as an alcoholic for sure. There's been a few nights. There's been one night that was, well, we should record on this really. We should. <laughs> yeah. We should record on this. Okay. Well, let's, yeah. <laughs> this, is like, this is a great cliffhanger for people. We um will just coming soon to full of beautiful borderline Sarah's yeah. journey with alcohol. No, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not ready, but, but someday we will. Yeah. I think I've actually been really curious, but I haven't asked because I just didn't want to pry, which is funny because mm-hmm. I, I feel like you and I prying is what we do, but we sure. do in front of millions of so people. So what we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, anyway, I haven't asked, but I'm very curious. So I don't even know how to end this episode. I don't even know if this episode is exactly what I needed, but I think it is. I think I just needed to like talk about the fact that like I'm having these emotions and I'm not, I'm sure I'm not alone. And I am by far not an expert on climate change, not an expert on weather or atmospheric rivers or post-traumatic stress or pre-traumatic stress. I'm not an expert on much, to be honest, except maybe like, the best thing to order at McDonald's. But I I think it's important to have conversations about the things that are scary to us in the mo- in the moments that they're scary. And um my absolute heart and love and everything in me is going out to the communities that have been affected, especially Abbotsford. Um and we'll include some resources um or some areas that people can donate and support uh, in the show notes for these communities. And again, like this is one example of a climate emergency and a climate disaster that happened. There are hundreds of thousands of others. This is just the one that I've been very close to and that has affected me the most. And I don't, I, I feel like this is the kind of thing that like, now that I understand what it feels like to be in like so close, it's going to affect me more and more and more. Um, and so maybe we'll do a second episode of what skills I have found, um, I'm able to use in the situation because ironically, I don't think radical acceptance is the one that I want for this situation. Um, because that is kind of like denial of like the fact that we do have a responsibility to do something arguably, I mean, that could be an entire episode in itself, but, um, (laughs) anyway, so just thanks for listening. I feel very bad for all of the uh, livestock and farmers and everybody. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.